Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. John, finally, we can get our hair cut in Georgia. Yeah, I was going to have that conversation with you. I thought it was, you're getting look, looking a little shaggy over there. Oh, good. I appreciate that. Well, you know, actually, you know, I've been taking care of that because I'm using like the guide on the clippers now, you know, where you can just like, you know, you just set it to an inch and you just go to town, yeah, man. Yeah, just hit you know? it. Yeah. Just hit it and just don't care, you know? It's I not, mean, not that easy for all of us. <laughs> no, it doesn't look great, but you know, it, it gets the job done. So at least it's just not like hanging all on your shoulders. <laughs> but yeah, I mean... You know, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, you can get your hair cut. Yeah, I mean, we're here in Georgia, and of course, Georgia's back open, and, mm-hmm. and ha- there are some haircutting places open, but the place I go to is not open, because mm-hmm. it's one of those, you know, cut guys' hair for, yeah. for you know, 20 bucks mm-hmm. kind of place, and they're just not open yet, you know, yeah, because... the chains are not open. Yeah, and they're and the salons are, rightfully so, you know, they're, they're cutting, they're doing the $100 cuts, yeah. you know, not the $30 cuts, so... <laughs> Yeah, I'm still using the guide. I don't know what you're doing, what your secret is, but yeah, uh, yeah we, you know, it's a little frustrating. It is. It is a good sign that things are starting to reopen now. You know, there's controversy about that, obviously, but uh, it is a a step in the right direction. There has to be health involved in all of this yes, um, at this point, but you know, the headlines are starting to to turn a little bit. You know, yeah, there are some things opening back up. Uh, it's going to be kind of slow, and I'm kind of concerned that employees may not run back out to yeah. those service jobs and you know all the restaurants and but that kind of stuff so golf courses are open golf courses and they are, open. are booming they are booming they are i cannot i almost can't i can't get a tea time but i can just like slip in on somebody's tea time yeah. that's all i'm doing so it's uh that's the good news for me because as you know i'm kind of the avid golfer there so you go. Uh, but anyway you know i mean speaking of interesting things though i mean we we do have some interesting things to talk about of course there's more developments with uh you know, with the with the COVID um, economy that we're in. And so we're going to talk about, you know, kind of where we are with that and what's going on with the economic numbers that are just out. And, uh, of course, they're not pretty. But we're going to talk about kind of what that means for the stock market and the economy maybe going forward. And um, then we're going to follow that up with some uh, new research about your investments, right? Yeah, there's something <clears throat> called recency bias, and it's a kind of a term that's in our industry, and and we see people making rash decisions based on the most recent um, experience in the market. And um, you know, we're going to talk, we're going to dive into that. This is kind of a psychological type article, but it's very interesting because uh, a lot of people make emotional decisions um, through difficult markets. And uh, I think if you recognize that you're having the and you kind of have some some measures in place to handle that. It can it can um, help you not make a bad decision. Yeah, it's really important research to understand that tendency in us. So that'll be a great topic. Um, by the way, I'm Steve Marber, and I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro with over 25 years' experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey certified counselor. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 27 years. 
We're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, check out our website, moneymd.net. We have a link to the podcast. You can uh, obviously listen to them in, in iTunes or you know download them and, and listen to them in the future, or you can just listen to them from your laptop, your computer, in your home. And, and we all have a lot of time now to listen to these kind of things, so uh, go check that out. We also have a lot of tools on the website and have a Facebook page, MoneyMD, as well. Yeah, that that's all there. A lot of good information. Um, we're going to start off here with our financial fact of the week. Yeah, so uh, we've heard a lot about the uh, the Paycheck Protection Program, $350 billion. Steve, this is pretty amazing. It, it took about two, maybe three weeks to completely exhaust that entire $350 billion. And, and there were a total of about 1.7 million loans that were made. And so that would be about $210,000 per loan. And it, it ended wow. very quickly. And, and so they, yeah. they're coming out with another one to, uh, yep. I think, $500 billion as well to um, provide additional relief. But one point, almost $1.7 million loans during a two-and-a-half-week time period. That is just in, an incredible amount of activity and money. Yeah, it was it was a, kind of a slow start, but boy, after a couple of days, it ramped up and they ran out of money very very quickly. Um, but very important program for small businesses, yeah. you know, to try to try to shore them up for a couple months of uh, payrolls and uh, and then also cover some of their rents and that kind of stuff. So yeah. and there's been some backlash against some large corporations, yes. larger corporations taking some of that money, and I tell you that really uh, irks me. It, it really does, it, it does irk makes you. me very upset. Yeah, they that, took it like just in case, you know. I mean, yeah. they they really could had access to loans through other banks and that kind of stuff and and these are corporations like the Ruth Chris you've heard of yeah. them you know Shake Shack yeah, and you I know mean, they're able to get like 10 million dollars yeah. because they had they didn't have over 500 employees at one location so mm. but they're spread all over I don't know yeah, I don't know why the congress wrote that in there but yeah, but I think there's been a lot of pressure in those Bad people. publicity for those folks, they I guarantee have. you. Well, they've returned a lot of that money, too. I know, but so yeah, they're negatively in the news, so yeah, be careful. that's true. That's true. All right, good fact of the week. And that leads us up here to our first topic, though. And, and John, that's the COVID economic blackout. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're in a very unusual period for the economy with this COVID virus and uh, this shutdown. And economists seem to have no idea where we're going to be in a few months. It kind of reminds me of the Apollo 13 movie. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah, where, you know, Tom Hanks and those other guys, they're reentering the Earth's atmosphere. And there's this six-minute blackout period, you know, which seems like an eternity to mission control where they're just sitting there. And they have no idea if they're okay or if they're burning up on reentry, you know. And that seems to be where we are with the economy. I mean, some economists think we're going to be fine and and we're going to, you know, have this great recovery. But then there's other that make references to the Great Depression and say that you know we're we could be in a slow or a bleak recovery. Um, you know, I mean, we have tons of earnings numbers that are coming in. We have economic numbers coming out. Um. You know, which all look, you know, pretty bad. Yeah. Right? I mean, aside from a few lucky companies like Home Depot and grocery stores, you know, most of it looks pretty horrible. But economists seem to all agree that those numbers are meaningless. Um, you know, there, there's been uh, kind of this strange twilight zone of an economy that we're in where we don't really know 
where we're going to end up or where we are um, here in a few months. Yeah, and well, you're going to get to this, but this is such a lesson on the the negative news in the media and the stock market is doing something completely opposite. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> Isn't right. That amazing. That is amazing. We're going to talk about why that is, but yeah, it is. You know, people are confused. They're scratching their head yeah. when they look at the stock market, given the numbers that are coming out. But um, but I will remind everybody. You know, if you're a member of Apollo 13, though, they came out the other side of the blackout unscathed amidst cheers from missions control. I'm I'm hoping that's what we're going to have for the economy yeah. here, you know, and I think we will, you know, on the other side of this, this COVID economic blackout. But nonetheless, I mean, we're going to dig in the numbers a little bit and talk about kind of where the economy stands now, um, as far as we can tell. Um, but we're getting mixed messages from economists out there, um, you know, while there are some economists that are, are think that, I mean, the numbers obviously are terrible. They're very ugly. Um, and after five weeks of shutdown, I mean, we're now approaching like 30 million Americans that are unemployed, getting unemployment benefits. Um, there are many others that are working at reduced speed from home or a few hours at workplaces that are still open. And, um, you know, the observed unemployment rate is likely headed to around 20 percent. Um so it's going to be a, a really unprecedented level since the Great Depression that we're going to see with unemployment. Um, you know, the new advanced estimate for first quarter's GDP numbers were just released um, <clears throat> this week, and they came in at 4.8%, John. So, I mean, a minus 4.8% drop yeah. in GDP. <laughs> so, you know, that's what they're estimating first quarter GDP is going to be. Of course, second quarter GDP <clears throat> is where economists – are estimating that we've dropped off the the COVID cliff here, and we're going to be at something like yeah. minus twenty twenty five percent GDP. So that's that's a recession, right? That I mean, we we are in a recession, a I deep mean, you know. deep recession. Yep. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, of course, I mean, so yeah, two quarters of negative GDP by technical definition is a is a recession. Um, of course, um, you know, the numbers are highly dependent on how fast we get back to work across America and the U.S. Um, in May and June. So we'll have to see where how it kind of all plays out. Yeah. And one of the facts, Steve, that really hasn't been covered that much is is really the action that the Fed has taken. I mean, yep. it is remarkable. I mean, amongst all this terrible economic news, you know, they, they've had the PPP that we talked about for the businesses and unemployment. But, you know, the Fed has taken some remarkable actions over the past month and a half. You know, they cut interest rates near zero. And uh, they're they're purchasing massive amounts of bonds, and uh, they basically thrown the proverbial kitchen sink at the economy. And uh, Jerome Powell, um, who leads the Fed Federal Reserve, he's acted outside the box um, and the traditional play playbook uh, that's prescribed by most economists and central bankers. And he's basically become a private asset manager and investment banker. He's buying and underwriting corporate, state, and municipal bonds, credit card debt, and auto loans. So really unprecedented here. And the, the Fed is even playing a role in the private commercial bank lending directly to corporations and small businesses. So they're propping up bonds of, of some some of the firms that have been downgraded below investment grade as a consequence of the recession. So there's a lot of, it's amazing what uh, Mnuchin has done. I think he's yeah. just a brilliant guy. Now, Treasury you know, Secretary, these, yeah. yeah, these things are going to, you know, they're going to come back to roost as well with, uh, you know, in the future. I mean, there's well, a lot of debt. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see what happens. You know, it's interesting because they did a little bit of this back during the, the Great Recession, if they you remember, did. in 2008, yeah. you know, with TARP. You know, it was, a, it was the Troubled Asset uh, Purchase Program or yeah, something like that, right, TARP. Right. And they um, 
They, you know, they, they, they actually made money on TARP, if you remember. <clears throat> you know, they bought these distressed assets that mm-hmm. were mortgage-backed securities back in 2008. And then it turned out whenever they sold them, they were able to sell them. The Fed sold them for a profit yeah. and actually returned that money to the Treasury. So it, it turned out really good. So they've kind of taken a page from that playbook and they've expanded it and said, OK, well, if, you know, if we could do it back then, we're going to do it now. But we're going to do it with all kind of other stuff. Yeah, You know, we're going to do it with, you know, even junk bonds now that they're buying. So it's uh, it's quite unprecedented. It, it's something that's never been done before. You know, hopefully they'll be able to sell those assets and and everything will be good. But if they get these massive amount of failures despite their efforts to prop it all up, then obviously those assets will become, you know, Mm -hmm. will become worth less. (laughs) I won't say worthless, but it'll be worth less than what they purchased it at. So but, you know, the Fed does need agents on Wall Street and local banks to execute all this. And so they've enlisted firms like BlackRock, you know, to help them accomplish this feat. I mean, because they don't have any loan officers or corporate bond traders on Constitution Avenue at their headquarters or the regional branches. But their balance sheet is going to shoulder the risk with an infusion of Treasury capital, a.k.a. newly minted U.S. dollars. (laughs) Right. So um, print it up. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, so that has been a big part of support to in this crisis has been the Fed's action. I, I think I read this yesterday that there was like nine different facilities they are using mm-hmm. different different stim types of stimulus um, that that are that they're using during this crisis to prop yeah, up, amazing. you know, and, and help support liquidity out there. So that's all very interesting. You know, of course, there's also the stimulus package, which provides the one-time direct cash payments from the IRS to households with incomes up to $198,000. There was the temporary weekly, you know, unemployment insurance payments that are continuing with the $600 per week's uh, supplementary uh, state benefits and the unemployment benefits to private contractors, gig workers, and um, then there's the other loans and the grants through the Small Business Administration. Um, so, you know, this unusual um, congressional uh, frictions that were, you know, blocking everything have been outmaneuvered and they passed all that stuff. And and so now we have a lot of money that's been flowing through the economy through those programs. And Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, you know, um, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, they all kind of made their 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 usual noises, um, but they quietly cut a deal, you know. Um, and I think the Treasury Secretary was behind a lot of that yeah, um, I agree. to cut a deal, um, and as they should have. And so, you know, nobody's completely happy with it, but they all came together, and um, you know, and they all voted yes. And and now this loan money um, that's going to be converted to grants for small businesses has been exhausted once. Now they have another three hundred ten million dollars. That's that's been infused into that process where they passed this past week and uh, for small business loans. And that's going to be flowing into the system for these small business loans in this paycheck protection program. Um, so there's a lot that's been done behind the scenes to to, to kind of s- support the economy while yeah. we have these terrible numbers coming out. Yeah, no doubt. And despite the fact that you know some corporations and small businesses don't have a lot of cash on hand to, to you know carry them through operating, uh, most at this point seem to be weather, weathering the storm, and if they can uh, continue to secure funding and and maybe open up partially to get some more revenue coming in, um, you know, as people get back to work, the economy might be able to pull off 
the Houdini of economic recoveries and avoid, uh, you know, really long drawn out recession, uh, which typically results when there's a lot of business failure. So I think the Fed's actions were absolutely critical and uh, would be in a different place if we didn't have that. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. <clears throat> um, but, you know, history will have to judge you know, yeah. <laughs> how effective and how wise it is. Um, but without the lines of credit, you know, many would permanently close, you know, um, as some smaller, you know, firms already have, um, of course. But for the most part, you know, the availability of easy credit and liquidity by the Fed is enabling companies to get the needed funding to carry on with their survival plan. <clears throat> of course, the payroll protection plan is providing badly needed funding for small businesses through the forgivable loans. And that's providing the eight weeks of payroll funding. So the questions investors are anxiously awaiting is how much damage will be realized to the economy once we come out of this COVID reentry blackout period that we're in. You know, and most economists seem to think that there's going to be some significant damage, which will take the remainder of the year to, to really heal. Um, and that would fit the consensus GDP estimates that we've seen out here for the remainder of the year, which show... Um, kind of a potential recovery to growth by the end of the fourth quarter this year. Yeah, and the stock market is basically looking ahead, right? Yes, it is. It <clears> is. We have all that <clears throat> negative news coming out and unemployment, <clears throat> and it was expected based on closing the country for you know a month and a half. So um, <clears throat> the markets are looking ahead, and they've really recovered significantly. I mean, the S&P 500 has actually recovered about 25% from the bottom that was on March the 23rd. So that was kind of the, the big, low. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it would take another 18% gain to get back to the high level reached on February the 19th. And small stocks were even down more than that. Um, they've recovered over 30%, um, but they need to uh, to recover another 30% in order to get back to that high water mark. So uh, you know, even though markets have recovered nicely from the bottom, there's still a long way to go. And, you know, if markets do recover or when they recover, that's going to be a nice bump. Some people say it's going to be by the end of the year, next eight months, that would be a pretty good gain. Obviously, no one knows what the market's going to do from here. But the fact is, that it has recovered significantly from the low. It has. And as you mentioned, you know, it's because the market is a leading economic <clears throat> indicator and is looking way out, is looking beyond, you know, the next two quarters Typically, it looks three to six months out. So what they say. I think in this instance, I think it's looking further. Yeah, I do too. Honestly, too. I think they're looking at the end of the year, yeah. thinking, you know, where is it going to be next year? If it looks like it's going to return to profitability next year, then heck, you know, this is this is kind of uh, yeah. Give everybody you know, a break for twenty twenty, right? <laughs> yeah, just kind of you know forget your returns in twenty twenty, and let's just say we get back to even by the end of the year. I think that's kind of what the market is looking at, and it's 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 making some people kind of puzzled. You know, the numbers look so bad, but at the same time, I think it um I think it makes some sense. You know, because it, these numbers are kind of meaningless that are coming out right now. Um, you know, and so while no one knows, you know, markets could uh, take a step back, though, first, um, given the reality of the ugly economic numbers that are coming out almost daily. You know, another factor that could facilitate a pullback would be if reopening the stakes doesn't progress as rapidly as many people expect. You know, and one reason that reboot may be slower than expected is the enhanced unemployment benefits. We talked about that before. But now that millions of people are getting these enhanced benefits for four months, there is some anecdotal evidence already that businesses are having problems rehiring those employees. 
some businesses are, are allowed to reopen here in Georgia, as we know. I mean, pretty much all businesses right here in Georgia. And there are new reports of businesses not being able to get their employees back due to the unemployment benefits they're getting, which are making, um, you know, are more attractive mm-hmm. than going back to work. Um, and so that may, pre- may prove to be a big challenge for local restaurants and other small businesses who are preparing to reopen um, here over the next three months while they're still getting these enhanced benefits. So, but anyway, despite this possible turbulence, which could affect the economic reentry during this blackout, you know, most economists seem to expect the economy to emerge on the other side of this mostly intact um, with the unprecedented levels of stimulus and liquidity that have been injected into the economy by the Fed. Um, it, it, it seems likely we're going to avoid the large-scale failures which would cause major problems. Um, meanwhile, I mean, we need to be patient. We need to recognize that an eventual recovery in the stock market over the next year would be a very attractive investment from this point going forward. So if you step back, put it in perspective, you know, you need to stay the course. You need to, to keep your money invested because it would be, you know, if we recover in a year, that would be a great return, mm-hmm. you know, from this point going forward. Yeah, you got to have a plan and a process to handle this kind of stuff. And, exactly. You know, we we exactly. do, and, and many people out there listening may, but not everybody does, and that's why people freak out. Absolutely. So, all right, and that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this question has to do with uh, being laid off, um, you know, from the from from their job, and uh, they're overwhelmed with bills. And how should they prioritize who they pay? And and I think Dave Ramsey has some really solid advice in this area. He basically says, protect the four walls. Make sure you're paying, you know, yep. your housing, your food, your utilities, and your transportation, and everything else can just wait. Absolutely. Who wouldn't agree with that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, the credit card company can wait. I'm sorry. You know, they're they, they're last in line. Um, you know, student loans and uh, are being deferred all the way till September. So yep. you got to call your vendors and say, hey, I can't pay it. Uh, I will in the future. But um, take care of your, I mean, if you think about the, the safety and security of you and your family, that's what is the most important thing. So that's what you need to focus on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you got to keep your priorities straight. And, you know, everybody wants to preserve their credit and want to, uh, you know, pay their bills. But at the same time, you you gotta you gotta take care of those four walls and uh, your family and you know food and shelter, all those things have to come first. So you gotta be realistic and just make priorities and and uh, you know I mean don't worry about it. Do what you can do. Yep. And uh, you know live to fight another day and and you'll be fine. So good word. All right, and that leads us up here to the next topic here, which is uh, recency bias. Is that infecting? Your investment decisions. Yeah, this comes from Samantha Lamas' uh, Morningstar article. Really, really good. Um, and you know, Steve, when making investment decisions, it it seems and feels like we have to predict the future. I mean, unless you have a secret time machine, that's going to be an impossible task. I mean, when we're we're faced with you know a lot of difficult decisions, especially during times of uncertainty and volunteer uh, volatility, our minds a lot of times take shortcuts. And and for example. You know, when we're trying to predict the future on this uh, COVID, um, you know, disease, our minds naturally reach reach for what's happened most recently, and that is called recency biased. And as humans, you know, we have an easier time remembering what's happened most recently. Uh, this shortcut, um, you know, serves us well in other aspects of our lives, but it hurts us when we make investment decisions. So recency bias can prompt us to uh, to place undue importance on recent events and. 
you know, when we see our portfolios drop by 10%, then recency bias convinces us that it's going to keep on dropping and we start making decisions and that's when it starts hurting us. Yeah, that's right. You know, so um, so what is recency bias? What does that look like? I mean, it's basing investment decisions on recent performance, um, and that can get investors in trouble. But, you know, research suggests that recency bias prompts many people um, to do it anyway. Um, you know, in a study that looked at the trading decisions of individual investors at large brokerage firms, Researchers found that investors' deci- buying decisions seem to be swayed by past performance of investments. Mm-hmm. Investments bought by investors outperformed the market by 40% over the previous two years on average. Um, however, you know, that was the previous two years. <laughs> you know, that was before they bought them. In the long run, this strategy didn't quite work out for investors in the study because researchers found that. Those previously sold stocks that they sold before they bought the new ones actually did better than the stocks they purchased. Mm-hmm. So that recency bias of looking at something that did well in the past didn't work out so well. Yeah, and during the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of investors seemed to fall into this trap of the recency bias. And using the survey data and some of the trading records of the investors in 2008 crisis, researchers found that the recent stock market performance it fueled trading behavior, prompting them to trade more during the volatile times. And the the study also found that increased trading activity during 2008 crisis, it hurt the investors' overall performance um, above and beyond the, you know, the market volatility that they already had. So these findings have also, you know, been replicated in normal market conditions where researchers found that high trading levels resulted in poor portfolio performance. So, you know, a lot of the things that you and I talk about, there's a lot of research behind the, the recommendations that we talk about. And, 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 you know, sometimes you can hit it big, but most of the time it's not going to work out very well. Yeah, that's right. So how do we stop recency bias from impacting your decisions? You know, I mean, although we haven't seen, you know, the same kind of flight away from the market that we did in the 2008 crisis, as the market volatility continues, it becomes harder to resist the pitfalls of that recency bias. Um, you know, so, I mean, there are various techniques investors can use to avoid their bias when it comes to making their decisions. And there are two different approaches. Um, you know, one is focused on kind of managing new information and the other is focused on slowing down your decision making process. Yeah, so there's a couple things that you can do. Um, you know, when the market's dropping, you know, our minds certainly have a hard time looking past what's happening right now. But there's a couple of techniques that we're going to talk about, which are which are important. Um, and um, you you want to make sure you surround yourself with the right information and resources. And so the first, you know, piece of data that is that is important is just understanding the full picture. And and we certainly try to provide that here on the on the podcast and with our clients. But um, understanding what history looks like and you know, researchers um, tracked market crashes um, going back 150 years, and they found that these large, uh, you know, volatility that we have happens about once every nine years. Now, here's the foul, here's the hard piece of this: is uh, a a um, correction, which is markets going down by 10 percent, happens once per year. That's right. Right. So these on average, on yeah. average, and so how do you how are you going to get it right once every nine years or once every five years? Which one of those is going to go down? I mean, the odds are in your favor to stay invested, right? Right. Versus trying to time the markets, and 
you know, so we have charts that we look at and we can go back and look at what happened with the Great Depression and the wars and, you know, um, Black Monday and the lost decade and so forth. And that's why folks like us in the Ramsey organization tell you to stay invested. Don't jump off the, the roller coaster because most of the time people get hurt. Yeah, the odds are already always in your favor for staying in when you look statistically at history. So, you know, when you make those those emotional decisions based on recent market history, it oftentimes leads you to the wrong decision. Um, so, you know, so how do you, you manage information? Um, one of those is the set a schedule. Um, receiving constant market updates can sway even the most skilled investor. You know, during times of high volatility like we've been in, you know, try setting a schedule for how often you check your portfolio in the news. I mean, once you make sure that your portfolio is aligned with your goals and it's properly allocated, you know, then try checking it maybe once a quarter, you know. I mean, stick to a schedule even when markets have gone awry like they have recently. Um, You know, when it comes to catching up with recent events, again, try checking the news, you know, once at the end of the day or even once a week. Um, You know, this all helps to manage your emotions. So you have to work on managing your emotions when it comes to investing and not let this information flow just constantly mm. barrage you mm-hmm. and, and wor- beat you down to the point that you make a rash decision. Yeah, that's right. And so another thing to, to look at in your situation is to add some friction to the decision. Maybe you have to go get approval from you know your financial advisor or you know a trusted friend or something. Don't just make a, a an emotional decision like like you said. If you have a plan um, and you have a process in place, it can help you get through these. And the last one here I'll, I'll let you talk about, which is really interesting, is explaining the opposite. I like that. I haven't yeah. seen that before. I like this one, too. I was going to say that, you know, because what it is, it's looking at the opposing view is what it is, right? And so if you're set on selling your investments, um, try to explain why a person might be willing to buy your investments or your portfolio. Someone else is buying on the other side. Somebody's buying on the other side. So what logic are they using? So look at the opposing view. And I, I like this for any you know kind of argument you're making. When you're making decisions... Always look at the opposing view because um, it helps give you perspective. You know, what might a person's reaction be, you know, when your investments pop up on their screen at such a discounted price? You know, if they were in your shoes, what might you do um, if you were in their shoes? You know, kind of forces yourself to answer the questions like before you make investment decisions, um, you know, it can help you see your past bias. If you look at the other side and say, Maybe it's a good time to be buying rather than selling. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe you're making a eighteen percent gain to get back to even in a in a year is a nice gain, and maybe it's a great time to put money in, not take money out. Yeah, you know, it forces you to look at that other side. I, I like that. it. Yeah, yeah. So that's um, recency bias. Don't let you know recent events uh, cloud your judgment. It uh, can be very emotional. We get it. Uh, trust me, we look at this stuff on a daily basis. So uh, if you have questions, certainly feel free to reach out to us. Absolutely. All right. And that brings us up to our last thing here, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, uh, we're big uh, life insurance believers. Uh, Term insurance typically uh, works very well. Uh, It's there to protect income. You don't necessarily need it for for kids or in retirement. It depends on your situation. But, Steve, I got a a nice little card in the mail about... um, you know, getting life insurance for kids and grandkids. And it's really, it's really sweet. It says, finally, a gift 
for your kids and grandkids that last a lifetime. And you can buy it as early as, you know, a month or two months old for your grandchild or your child. They, okay. The child's not making income. You you don't need to get you don't need life insurance, insurance for, for kid. kids. Yeah, you don't. But uh, it was interesting they got this, and it's only $2.17 a month. I mean, come on. I mean, Sounds such a, such a great yeah, deal. Right. Why wouldn't you get that, John? Yeah. And well, and then it kicks up at some point, right? Well, how yeah. old do you have to be before it ticks I up? don't know. I did. Yeah, I just wanted to use this for the prescription because we, we do see these and we see people come in. It, you generally don't need to have life insurance on yeah. kids. My wife had a, a policy that she they had bought, uh, his parents had bought as an infant on her um, when we got married. And, you know, and it was like, yeah, it was super cheap, dollar a month or some crazy, you know, it was like a globe life yeah. kind of thing that yep, they yep. used to do. And um, and then when we when she got to be like twenty five, it jumped to like some astronomical you know uh, yeah. premium, and uh, and it was only like twenty thousand dollars of insurance or ten thousand or some really small amount. And I was like, you know, I mean, we could buy a term policy. Why would we keep this? You yeah. know, so it just it was a it was a. It was a bad deal to keep. They're, it was cheap when there was yeah. cheap. So you don't, yeah. They're playing on emotions. They are. Parents and grandparents. They are, exactly. So, you know, buy insurance for what you need, not for, you know, what makes you feel good. That's right. So that's kind of the moral of the story. Good prescription of the week. All right, and that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Send us your questions. You can link to us there off our website or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVistor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor.